from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Kevin Locke. Kevin is Lakota, and he shares the traditions of his ancestry with audiences all over the world, like the traditional hoop dance and traditional flute playing. His website is kevinlock.com. I started the interview by asking Kevin where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in a number of different places, but the place that I spent the most time, you know, in my life has been right, you know, North and South Dakota, mostly South Dakota, I guess, yeah. What was it like growing up? I think just as a kid, I always liked, you know, doing stuff outdoors all the time. You know, I think I always liked all the seasons. All the seasons were good. You know, I love when it gets cold. I used to just love to get go out sledding. And, you know, I, I got some little ice skates. I remember when I was about six years old or something, I got some little ice skates to go out skating around. I loved that. You know, in the summertime, I loved going swimming and, I, I think I was always just a outdoor kind of a person mm. all the time. What was school like for you? I started school up in, uh, we were living in Great Falls, Montana, I remember that. Went to the uh, uh, Lewis and Clark Elementary School in Great Falls. Oh, boy, those kids used to really pick on me. Why was that? I don't know why it was, but I just felt like it. I just felt like I didn't belong in there. But anyway, I, I managed to get through school, you know. Did you grow up as a Baha'i, or did your parents have uh, a different religion? No, I, I was the, uh, I think around 79 or 80, uh, probably 80. I'm not, well, I'm not sure. I was the first Baha'i in my family. First and only Baha'i for about maybe 10 or 11 years. That was after high school? Yeah, well, I'm. I was born in '54, so yeah, 1980. I would have been uh, what 26. So, what were the circumstances that had you run into the Baha'i faith? I encountered the Baha'i faith uh, at that time through some uh, what you would call home front pioneers, and they moved to the uh, little community where I was living there in Fort Yates, North Dakota. So these were Baha'is. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Yes. And, and what happened? You know, I, I heard about the uh, the message from them, and and uh, I remember, um, I, I don't know, I think it was probably the hidden words, were probably the, the first Baha'i writings that I had a chance to, to look at. And it kind of sounds unusual, but when I began to read the writings, the hidden words, and it was as if the print, uh, I know this sounds fantastic, but the print, just I could just, jumped off of the page almost and came right up at me. It was just that kind of a powerful 
unearthly experience that I had. Then I had to I'd read them for a few minutes. I had to shut the book and put it away because it was just like such a powerful effect. And then I knew that I think that the, the words, you know, were had the, I knew they had the power, you know, the power to really shake me up. And I knew that I, if I, uh, I would have to change my life around so much, like total 180 degree change. And I think that was really a fearful, it was fearful for me to confront that. But so I, I put the, put it away, but then there was something that was compelling me to, to open it again and, and look at it again. Now, Kevin, what were the circumstances that had you run into these Baha'is in the first place? Oh, I think I was I was really looking, I was searching, and I was um, just open. You know, I, there's a lot of people going around, you know, on the reservation there, uh, Standing Rock, where I live. And there was, I think, that for some reason, there was a lot of, uh, how would you say that, like, um, proselytizing of different religions. You know, the people were going door to door and everything, and... Then all ended up telling me I was going to hell, you know. So, mm. And so uh, all you know, all these different denominations end up. I mean, the Baha'i people I knew they when I first met, they didn't they weren't going door to door. Don't get me wrong there, but I just encountered them, and they're very gentle, very nice people, and they, you know, introduced me to their to the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. And that was there was just something very um, compelling about that. My encounter with the writings. So you said you realized you had to do a 180-degree shift once you ran into the Baha'i faith. What was going on in your life before you ran into the Baha'i faith? Well, I was just mostly just confusion, and um, I always felt like, uh, you know, there was no uh, foundation in life. You know, that was my feeling was that there is, you know, uh, I, I always felt like, you know that there is there is nothing of su- of substance in in the uh, life. You know, I was I guess you might say totally disillusioned with everything I experienced, everything I would encountered mm-hmm. in life. You know, there was just, it was just like a big facade, a big uh, a big mirage, or like everything was just there, there. There was nothing of substance. Everything was just sinking in quicksand. You know, the uh, our, our, our you could say it like this. The world that we live in, and I still, I still believe that. You know, without a spiritual foundation, to me, life is just is just a sham. It's just a, it's just a facade. The feeling that I had is that I was living in that illusion, and I was not happy to live in that place. That's why I was searching for something. During those years after high school and before you ran into the Baha'i faith, what were you doing? I graduated from UN University of North Dakota with a degree in elementary ed, and I was elementary school teacher at the uh, Standing Rock Elementary School in Fort Yates, North Dakota. And I also got uh, uh, my graduate degree, my master's degree in uh, educational administration, and I was a uh, school administrator also in Fort Yates. Did you like teaching? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was really good. I, mm. I enjoyed, you know, I've always enjoyed doing stuff with kids. It's, it's just, it's really my life, you know. So you ran into the Baha'i faith, and did it take you long before you actually became a Baha'i, or did it take you some time? You know, I, I guess I really didn't, didn't know what, what it was, because uh, 
you know, I think at the time when I was learning about the Baha'i faith from these two people, I think probably the closest, you know, really viable Baha'i community is probably maybe Minneapolis, about 400 miles, or, you know, maybe Regina, Saskatchewan, also 400 miles away. So, in other words, I just wasn't aware. When my friends, when they asked me if I wanted to become a Baha'i, they were leaving the area. I, I really didn't know what they were asking. You know, I, I just mm-hmm. thought it was just, I, I knew it was a belief, but I didn't know that it was, I guess I didn't have a conception of it being a, a community, really. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I guess right. I just didn't realize it. Yeah, I didn't realize it. I probably heard about it, but unless you really are exposed to it, it doesn't, it's not, it, to me, at least for me, it was not really a, a reality. I knew them, and that was about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So then what happened? The ha- first Baha'i communities I met were in Africa. How long was it before you realized there was a community involved? Well, it didn't take long. In 1980, I went on a State Department tour. We went to nine countries in Africa, and that's where I met lots and lots and lots of Baha'is. What were you doing in Africa? It was, a, it was like a cultural exchange tour as a performer. That was through this, what they call Arts America. That was when they, uh, it's now, it's, it's, not, it's no longer a uh, program, but then it was, they had a pretty good line item in their budget for that. That was when they, you know, Arts America was uh, where they would utilize performing artists as uh, international goodwill ambassadors. The most noted proponent of that whole Arts America movement was a gentleman named of, uh, Dizzy Gillespie. So why don't you tell our listeners who Dizzy Gillespie was? I really don't know. But I just, <laughs> I've heard of him. I know that he was a uh, prominent jazz musician. Who was also a Baha'i. Yes. So you were telling me you're, you're a performing artist. So back then, what was your performing art? It's pretty much the same. You know, it's just, uh, I just do uh, folk art or traditional arts. I, I pretty much do the same thing now today, yes. Can you describe it for us? Oh, well, it's just, you know, it's just uh, folk arts, you know, like in every community throughout the world, you know, all peoples have developed over, it's, it's kind of like, a, it's, it's not conveyed through, you know, formal education or formal means, but informally, each community has developed very beautiful and distinct aesthetics in which they're able to portray, you know, beauty and nobility and harmony and balance and really very universal themes you know, either through music or through dance or storytelling or any kind of different kind of crafts. It's kind of like an innate within the human spirit to express itself, its own nobility, the nobility of the human spirit. It's like the, it's the most perfect way to con- communicate universal themes, folk arts, traditional arts. And when but every it- community is different. So I just, do the, I just do the folk traditions from my own community. Which is? Uh, in yeah, there in you know Dakota Lakota community. When did you first start doing this folk performing art? Oh, it's it? it's in my DNA, man. <laughs> it's in my it's my my genetic code. So did did you start soon as that as soon as you got out of the womb, you started? Yeah, yeah, I heard that beat. My mother's really <laughs> a heartbeat. It penetrated me to my core, and I began to kind of bebop and shake and rattle and roll inside there, and I just came out like that. <laughs> Never stopped. 
So really, you were doing this, the native folk dancing all through your early years in high school? Oh, I kind of, I kind of, you know, would fade in and out, that's for sure. But, uh-huh. uh, but then you got into it a, more seriously uh, in your 20s? Yeah, exactly. Now, there's one dance that you do, it's, uh, and I don't know the proper name for it, but it, you use hoops. Yeah. Can you explain that to us? Uh, hoop dance, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is a traditional dance. It's a traditional dance, but the main idea is it invokes the symbology of the hoop. You know, the hoop is the most ubiquitous or most pervasive uh, universal archetype. And so basically, for all people, it has the same symbolism, which, you know, everything has the form of the hoop, everything in creation, really, everything in the natural world, even down to protons, neutrons, electrons, and everything. So basically, it's, it's, the, it's the design of creation. So it symbolizes, you know, anything holy or sacred. And, you know, it symbolizes unity and peace and well-being and harmony and balance and continuity and, you know, everything good, everything good. And so when when you use the hoops to dance, then it's, it's like a choreographed prayer that we could be restored to all those good things and restored to wholeness, not just, you know, physically or not just emotionally or mentally, but uh, not just individually, but collectively. And so that's the basic premise behind the dance. Our folk arts or folk traditions that we have out in the Dakotas have like zero relationship to entertainment. I know in the in the dominant culture, arts are associated with entertainment, and I'm always getting categorized as an entertainer. But I hasten to disabuse people of that notion because it, it totally doesn't come from that conceptual framework. What are most of your venues then for doing your art? Well, mostly like jails, old age homes and schools, any audience that is there against their own free will. (laughs) You know, anywhere we can go where, you know, the people are there involuntarily or they're, you know, forced to be there. That's where we go usually. So where was your last performance? Oh, today we tortured about 1,500 kids (laughs) in here in uh, Jamestown, New York. The first batch was 900 kids. Oh, my gosh. They were just hanging off the rafters and everything. Using this beautiful, beautiful old uh, performing arts venue in uh, in Jamestown. It was really cool because they, I think it was right there they recovered this oldest, how would you say, memorabilia associated with, with uh, Buffalo Bill. It was a poster advertising the uh, Buffalo Bill Wild West show. So we were actually doing the same presentation that the, that those performers were doing in 1878, basically on the same spot. So that was pretty cool. We did the same stuff, including the hoop dance. You know, that was what yeah. they, they did. But the difference was the people who were performing with, you know, Buffalo Bill in 1878 could not speak any European languages, such as English. So they were not able to communicate to the people what it was that they were doing. So it was really cool. We come back, you know, 140 years later or something, and we can actually communicate what the people back then wanted to say. So what did they want to say, and what were you able to say? 
That's what I was telling you, that it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with entertainment, that it's, it's, it's a vision dance, you know, it's a choreographed prayer. So you don't find the Baha'i faith in any way difficult to integrate into your traditional dance? Uh, well, of course, you know, in a public venue, you can't really, um, there's some kind of a thing in the United States about, you know, like, you know, uh, how do you say that, keeping the secular apart from the sacred, but we can really go break those, bust down those boundaries pretty well because, you know, within the context of traditional or folk arts, and you you know, you can really get way deep into, you know, sacred things. Mm. That's good. But no, there's no conflict, as you know. Um, Baha'u'llah didn't come to deny or to invalidate or in any way separate us from our spiritual heritage, but in fact came to from the same, you know, has brought a message from this from this one source of light, one source of glory and beauty, and this light is so powerful now that every different kindred people on the planet can use that light to shine on their own heritage, their spiritual heritage, and to really see the reality and see that it all comes from one source. You can see now that we're living in a day in which we can all, um, all of those visions, all of those all of that great spiritual heritage is not is now achieved or is able to realize its highest consummation. In other words, the, the prayers, the dreams, the hopes, the visions, the aspirations of our ancestors can now be realized, and we can actually witness this on their behalf and to move closer towards the fulfillment of their prayers. It's just like we've all reached a stage in our collective ascent of the great mountain which we can all see each other, and we can see the summit, the goal, which is the summit, but we can see that we will never, ever reach that summit unless we validate and accept one another. Mm-hmm. And Baha'u'llah has given us that overarching vision that will enable us to see each other with the proper perspective as all family, one human family, and we need to move forward together. You know, the arts, in English you say the arts, but that the tradition of movement and sound and color that all people have is one of the powerful tools that we can use to facilitate that upward, that upward movement, collective movement of humankind. It's kind of nice that you're able to bring the divine or the spirituality aspect into these venues that may not be yeah, so possible. Yeah. Well, the kids, you know, the kids... They, they already live in that realm. You know, the uh, in our local language, you know, Lakota language, the word for child, we say wakaija, wakaija. The waka part means holy or heavenly. And so it really, the word for children means, you know, uh, refers to their heavenly origin. And so they're already uh, pretty much attuned, you know, it's just that's, that's very much alive within them. That connection, but then you know, of course, through immersion in our materialistic civilization, that that connection seems to be somewhat so severed, you know. So, but through the arts, you know, things that we're doing, we can nurture that and keep that keep that connection, that continuity alive. And what was the age group of these kids? These nine hundred kids. They were uh, mostly. Uh, yeah, like I say, we have about 1,500 kids there, predominantly like second through sixth grade. That, that was about the that was the majority. There was 
There is some older and some younger, but that was that was the medium. Median. So they were pretty interested. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Just mm. yeah, they're 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 with you. You know, it's great. What was the reaction of your family to you becoming a Baha'i? Well, uh, you know, my my mom, she she was uh, you know she was uh, didn't really know too too much about it at first, but you know she of course eventually did become a Baha'i, and within a year after her becoming a Baha'i, she she was actually served on the uh, on the national governing body of the Baha'is in the United States. I think just about within the years of her, you know, first becoming a Baha'i. How long after becoming a Baha'i? But within a year, I. So your your family was pretty receptive to it then. Well, just her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Others not so, huh? Yeah, just her. That's all right. <laughs> now, have you been traveling around the world? I have. I have been to. I think it's. Some, somewhere around 88 or 89 countries altogether. And I saw on your schedule that you were in Iraq. I was. I was in Iraq. We were there for a special program. The, you know, the military, they, uh, they, have, uh, they contract out to different uh, um, contractors to provide, you know, cultural enrichment and entertainment and things like that. So we had the great privilege of being able to... Uh, help celebrate what they call Native American Heritage Month over there. We went to, uh, we were in Baghdad, you know, Camp Victory, Camp Liberty. Then we went to uh, quite a few of the FOBs, which is the Forward Operating Bases. We were up there around uh, Tikrit and Fallujah, went down towards Basra, you know, all around those areas via Black Hawk helicopters. <laughs> It was very cool. Did you have an opportunity to interact with the Iraqis at all? Well, the only real chance we had to interact with the Iraqis was uh, the ones that were, uh, they have this Iraqi compound there where the, you know, the Iraqis are actually positioning to take, take over a lot of the operations there. And so there's a, there's a special area where the... Uh, Iraqi military compound is. So we were there. We did some presentations there. And do you have any other plans soon to go to another country? It just comes up all of a sudden, just like uh, a few weeks ago, we went to Thailand. But I didn't know we were. I was going to Thailand a week before departure. Oh, my gosh. It just popped up out of nowhere. Who sponsored the trip to Thailand? That was sponsored in part by the uh, U.S. Embassy there, but it was also, there were some other organizations that, that sponsored it. And was that more to expose the people there to Native American culture, or was it, again... Oh, no, it was a, it was a festival. It was uh, these two big international fest, music festivals. And then we went to uh, some schools, universities, and we did a program at an orphanage. Yeah, it was great. What was your impression of Thailand? Oh, it's a beautiful country. They've got great food. (laughs) (laughs) food. And I think really the main thing is that the people are just really, 
I would just characterize them as very uh, sweet people for the most yeah. part. You know, really nice. Everywhere I go is nice, you know, but there, you know, certain there's certain national characteristics and qualities. You know, is there something you want to accomplish that you haven't accomplished yet in what you're doing, or in any other area? I really enjoy what I'm doing. I think it's a, I think it's such a great blessing. But uh, the main thing that I, you know, as a Baha'i, that I, I think, you know, well, what I'm doing is, is such a bounty, but then also um, we want to uh, move our area ahead spiritually. You know, uh, the area that I live, it has a, there's a, a tragic history, you know, a very tragic history, and that just the conditions of the people currently experience are quite tragic as well. And yet the people do have, just like every other people in the, on the planet, a vision of, uh, no, of being, becoming ennobled as a people. And, of course, that ennoblement depends on the quality of the response to the revelation of Baha'u'llah. So we want to just enable that to happen. And the strategy that we have where I live is to really focus on the uh, children's classes and then from there move to the uh, you know, junior youth activities and on up the line. In other words, raise up our own human resources. And you live at Wakpala, South Dakota? Yeah. Yes. And how big is that area? The population of Wakpala District is uh, something over 400, between like four and 500 people, but it's not... They're not all in one place. It's, they're scattered throughout a pretty large area. It's a low population density mm-hmm. area. From if you go outward from that from where I live, the closest stoplight's about 120 miles. Yeah, it's a sparse population. About what area of territory is that? If I go to, you know, if I was to start from right where I live and yeah. and draw a line a hundred miles. And go all the way around, 100 miles, all the way around, you would not have 10,000 people there. Whereas if you did that from the point where you live, you go 100 <laughs> miles out, I, w- I bet you have more than 10 million people there yeah. all the way around. Is that right? Well, I don't know about 10 million, but if I, it's, well, it's if I, that's right. If I head south, <laughs> if I head south, that's true because I'll hit New York City. <laughs> yeah, if you 100, I think. You go from your, your where you are at this moment. Yeah. You go 100 miles out, and you make a big, huge circle, pie 100 miles oh, out. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, then you got, yeah. Because then yeah, you hit, you hit Boston, you hit New York City. Yeah. yeah, you'd have, like, what, 30 million people. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You, so then, like, where I live is 10,000 in the same yeah. area. Yeah. So, big difference. Now, how long have you lived there? Most of my life, you know, mm. like I say, I've lived a few other places, but I guess I've lived most of my life there. Do you know anything about Native American prophecy for this day and age? Well, yeah, there's so many prophecies, but as you know, you know, all the all that the 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 meaning of it is sealed up. In other words, there's so many prophecies, but but you know, like I was listening today to these people going on and on about Book of Revelations, you know. Mm. But they totally didn't have any concept of what, what, those, what those prophecies are about. So really, you know, it's only in the light of the, of the, of the succeeding 
revelation that the prophecies make any kind of sense at all. Yeah. But yet, yeah, there there are so many prophecies, yeah. Basically, all the prophecies are the same, though. They all point to a day of fulfillment. And this is just like, uh, you know, in the Bible, Jesus talks about, you know, the kingdom of God says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So now everybody has a slightly different conceptualization of what that kingdom looks like. So the, the main prophecy of the people up where I live, the Lakota people, has to do with this, the people being shown this road, the road of life. They say that, you know, the straight road, the good, the holy, the red road, that the people will, will be uh, guided to that. That the tree of life will bloom and blossom and be filled with singing, singing birds and fruit. So what does that mean? I mean, yeah. This is the prophecy, but, uh, you know, only in, through the light of Baha'u'llah do we know that the tree of life really means the covenant is renewed, the manifestation of God appears and causes the tree of humanity, which prior to this time has not blossomed, has not borne fruit, because that fruit of the tree of life is the achievement of the uh, unity of mankind. That's the, that's the fruit of, this, of the tree now the human family tree. Anyway, it's only, like I say, only through the uh, elevated position, you know, of knowledge that we can understand the significance of any of the prophecies of the past. Now, you mentioned manifestation of God. For the benefit of our listeners, what does that concept mean? Uh, manifestation of God, I don't have the exact definition, but it refers to a revelator one who is commissioned by God to establish a covenant. And the covenant I'm speaking of is are the laws, the social laws, the spiritual laws, which are immutable and, and unchanging, really. It's the social laws that, that vary according to the exigencies of the, of the time, you know, in which they were revealed. And also the covenant includes uh, prophecies as well. All the covenants of the past, they all basically give the glad tidings. You know, the, the prophecies are basically are, are what they are, what they consist of are glad tidings of a day of fulfillment in, in different signs and things to anticipate that would uh, preface the, that uh, advent of that day of fulfillment. What's an example of, this, of these covenants? Oh, the, the covenant of uh, Jesus, the covenant of Moses. The covenant of uh, Krishna, Zoroaster, Buddha, Muhammad. These are regarded as uh, universal manifestations of God, the ones I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Now, we do know that all peoples on the planet have been the beneficiaries of covenants, although not perhaps received from universal manifestations of God, like the ones mentioned. Mm -hmm. But yet, you know, all peoples of the world have... There have been, you know, holy souls and enlightened beings who have appeared and have brought this, uh, you know, these great laws and teachings to all peoples. In fact, at the at this very moment, I'm sitting very close to the place where the uh, Haudenosaunee, you know, the, uh, the the five nations, you know, the, mm, the uh, I'm sitting on Seneca homeland right now, where I'm, I'm currently near Jamestown, New York. 
and this is the place where the, the great the peacemaker walked these, these lands right here and brought the great law of peace, the means by which the people could attain to a good mind, a good heart, and, you know, all the uh, blessings of God through, through the laws that the peacemaker brought. But the first follower of the uh, peacemaker was Hayawinta. Where I live, you know, I live out in, in South Dakota, and we had a, a, a holy soul who appeared there and brought a covenant, and it was a woman, her name was Ptehinshala Skawi, the white buffalo calf maiden. And there were many, you know, for the Cheyenne people there, it was uh, sweet medicine. And, you know, every people on the planet has this legacy. And I think it's, it's a beautiful day because now we're, we can begin to have this dawning consciousness that we are all legitimate heirs to the to all these great this great heritage it's really we're all you know we are heirs to this all legitimate heirs to the all the riches of the human experience especially the spiritual heritage so it's uh quite comforting to to realize that no people were left behind in right in god's exactly. gift to to humanity exactly which is Amen to that. <laughs> well, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, share your story with us. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kevin Locke, a Native American who shares his Lakota heritage with audiences all over the world, including the traditional hoop dance and Northern Plains flute playing. You can learn more about Kevin at his website, kevinlock.com. After the close of this program, you'll hear excerpts from Kevin Locke's CDs, Hope of Life and Midnight Strongheart. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. These are stories of the nobility of the human spirit. Stories that are passed down from our ancestors. Stories that were told around the fire from generation to generation. And stories that live on. They live on because they remind us of who we are and remind us that we have the ability to rise up out of the darkness to escape the depression and negativity, but to take our rightful place like the eagle on the wings of knowledge. This is the story of the seven directions. It takes place long, long ago. They say, a honey, ga a honey. Way at the beginning, this 
earth was made, this world, this universe was fashioned. In seven days, the Creator completed this in seven days. Now, on each day, the Creator fashioned and put in place all the powers of each direction, one at a time. He fashioned the direction of the east, and he put in place the powers. He made the sun to rise and to shine and to move over the heavens. He caused the moon to appear, and he made the morning star to become the harbinger of the new day. He created the south, the Itokahata, the place that we turn towards, the place that we journey towards after we depart this earthly life. And he placed the powers there, and he caused there to be a place where life ever springs fresh and verdant. And he set the powers towards the west, and he made the thunders to appear from there in the spring. And in the north, he caused the winds to come at a certain time, the winds that purify and renew everything. And then he put the spirit within this earth. On the seventh day, the creator stood in the center of the universe, facing towards the dawning light, yet still within the pre-dawn darkness.
So this has been the story of how the Meadowlark rescued the people from the ravages of this horrible disease. Today we owe our existence to this wonderful, this miraculous occurrence. Today our bodies are here, but also today we suffer from a disease. It's a disease of spirit. In many ways we lack hope, we lack faith, we lack unity, we lack the vision that we need to restore our people to our rightful place. And today, we have an opportunity every day to arise and to seek the light, to seek the beauty, to seek the renewal of faith, to seek that which will ennoble us as human beings, as wahunumpa, as two-legged ones, members of the human being tribe. We are all a part of this. Ho Mitakuye Oyasi. American Indians used the arts for a different purpose. Oftentimes, the arts are used in the dominant culture to escape reality, to escape stress. But for the American Indian people, the arts are used to connect with reality, to connect with that which is real, that which is good, that which is true, that which has perpetuity. We use the arts to remind ourselves of the dreams, the visions, the hopes of our ancestors, and to remind ourselves that we're all one. We're all part of one creation. As the Lakota say, mitakuye oyasi, all my relations, an acknowledgement of our oneness, our intrinsic relatedness with all of creation. And the hoop dance is a powerful expression, a powerful portrayal of this reality. Because with the hoops, the hoop dance represents the oneness of creation. The hoop is a symbol of harmony, of balance, of peace. We use the four colors to represent the four directions, the seasons, the elements, the different powers, the different stages in life as we go from, from our childhood to parenthood to grandparenthood and then, of course, the great-grandparenthood, different stages of life, the different lessons that we learn as we strive to fulfill our purpose in life. 
And yet all of this is within the context of the hoop of life. So the hoop dance is more than just entertainment, but it's really a summary statement of who we are and what our reality is. I would almost venture to say that for American Indian people, the arts are used for perhaps an opposite purpose. We use the arts to connect with reality. The flute is experiencing a resurgence of interest, not just in North America, but all over. And I'm talking about the native flute. We say shiotanka. But amongst different tribes, there are varying stories as to the origin of the flute. I would like to share one of these uh, narratives that I have heard regarding the origin. And also there is a song which is attached to this story, which is uh, said to be the original song, the progenitor or the the uh, the basis from which uh, all of the subsequent compositions were created. Now there was a hunter, and just like all young men, he wished to distinguish himself to distinguish himself in service. Now this young man had many capacities, many abilities, and he developed these abilities. And one of the things that he was very good at was hunting. He especially was a good tracker. And his family and his friends and all his relatives came to rely upon his tracking abilities. And so he was able to always find the game, no matter how scarce it had become, and no matter how difficult it was for his friends and relatives to find game, he was always able to detect the tracks and to follow them. And this always resulted in success. Oh, hechete olo. Wana 
Fake Ohunkaka Naish Ehani Oyakapi Wanji Epinkta Oblakinkta. As it is told, countless generations ago, there were people living upon this earth, and they were spread out over the surface of this beautiful island, Makawita, the beautiful earth island, North America. And they lived a good life. Wakantanka, the great spirit, had blessed them with an abundance of everything which is good. But it came to pass that certain individuals became forgetful of the covenant, the relationship between Wakantanka, the great spirit, and his grandchildren, the earth people, Makaoyate. And so it came to pass that Wakantanka made a ruling, a decision that this old world should be renewed. This old world should be replenished and made over. So Wakantanka sent a deluge, a ceaseless rain, and unleashed all the waters upon the earth. And the earth was to become inundated and destroyed in this way. Now there was a people on this earth, and they were a good people. They were a faithful people. And they saw and they prayed and they saw what was to take place, that this earth would be destroyed. And they saw that this deluge was imminent. And so they went to the highest point of land, and under the leadership of their chief, they made a prayer knowing that they were to be destroyed. And they prayed that their lives would not be in vain, that their hopes, that their dreams, their aspirations could be realized. And they prayed to God that even though they were to be destroyed, that their dream would live on, their vision would live on. enjoyed those selections from Kevin Locke. To find out more about his CDs, you can visit his website, kevinlock.com.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.